Oh yeah, baby, that's Traveling Riverside Blues from Led Zeppelin. One of the great, great songs. I think it, what we said last time, if you got the box set, uh, there was a box set that you could get that would have Traveling Riverside Blues on it because it was a B-side. Anyway, welcome to MMA BJJ in Life. I'm your host, DJ San Marco, coming to you from Laguna Niguel, California, the place that I love. Uh, even though I, I, I could stand a little bit of winter where I get a little bit of snow, uh, I'm, I'm taking advantage of, of what I got. But uh, happy to be here, and oh, we're we're gonna bring you we're gonna bring you the black belts tonight, folks. We have on for you uh, two very well respected black belts in the uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu community, Professor Brent Latell, my co-host of uh, the Eddie Bravo Tenth Planet System, and now. Um, soon to be owner of a Gracie Baja under Felipe Della Monica. Brent Littell has a black belt under him as well. And coming to us from Tampa, Florida, the U.S. Air Force's own Hicks and Gracie's former assistant and still friend, little Tony Pesensky. Three degree black belt, I believe, under uh, Rodrigo Medeiros. So uh, joining us when we come back, you should hear the voices of Brent Littell and Tony Pesensky. So sit tight. And it's Black Belt Night here on MMA, BJJ, and Life. Welcome back to MMA BJJ and Life. I'm your host DJ San Marco here along with my co-host from Orange County, Professor Brent Littell. I don't I don't know if I still need to call him Professor, but there could be repercussions if I don't. And uh, and we would like to welcome in uh, our guest tonight, um, a man of, of, of some renown. Actually, both of them are of some, are of some renown in the jiu-jitsu community. So uh, everybody, just say hello. It's uh, Brent Littell and Tony Pisensky. Hello. Hello. Uh, thanks for having me, DJ and Brent. All right. It's good to have you on, brother. I know it's late there. Tony is coming to us. Uh, the uh, the Air Force's uh, favorite new crew chief is uh, coming to us from Tampa, Florida, where it is approximately 12:24 a.m. So I appreciate it, Tony. I know how. Uh, I know. Uh, I'm hoping that you don't have to work in the morning. Uh, no, I have the uh, the swings, so I'll be at work at, by 2.30. Yes. Uh, gym time is early. Uh, I'm going to be at the gym at like 8, 8.30. So okay, so, so the only one who's angry right now is your wife? Uh, she's asleep. If I don't wake her, we'll be all right. Okay. All right. So, so right now, everything's in good shape. Uh, everything appears to be in, in good order then, and it sounds like we have really good volume, which is even better. Um right. So, uh, as I mentioned, I actually introduced you guys before you came on, uh, both, uh, uh, Eddie, you two have not met, am I correct? No. Not from my best knowledge, no. 
Okay, but and it's funny because both of you are Carl originally, well, not originally, but both of you are Carlson Gracie guys. Yes, but his uh, his scope and reach is so big, Carlson. I mean, you know, the team that he started down in Brazil ended up coming here and spreading out, forming you know top team and Carlson Gracie team everywhere, and then Rodrigo Madeiras who started his own team as well. Not the Rodrigo up in uh, Minnesota, but down in San Diego. That's right. That's your that's your that's your your professor down there, right, Tony? Uh, yes, Rodrigo Monderos is my professor, and um, and my originality when I originally started jujitsu, I was always like connected to Elio Gracie's side. And um, as time went on, when I finally met Rodrigo, I finally got the to taste what the whole Carson Gracie team was all about training in San Diego. So. It's like, it's kind of like ridiculous between the, the the both of you guys having Carlson having the you know Brent you with the Carlos side then with Eddie Bravo but some of the Jacques Machado side like you guys have really hit on quite a bit of you know like the originality of jiu-jitsu. I think we've both been blessed um, by living in an area where the Brazilians found it. Uh, easy to transition to with the uh, kind of the surf culture and beach and so forth. <laughs> yeah, that, that was pretty lucky. They're like, oh, this California just looked pretty good. <laughs> yeah, so you, it was a little bit of being at the, the right place or just going towards it. And uh, for me, being raised in the East Coast and there were no waves or anything like that in Philadelphia, when I first got to visit California when I was 17 and they had the instructor's training with in, in Torrance with the Gracie's, I said, yeah, this is going to be me when I get out of high school. I want, I want to go here. So that was my, uh, my plan. That, that is, that's really, so that, that was, uh, you were training with Steve Maxwell until that time. Yes. My, the first Gracie that I ever met was Helson Gracie. When I went there, I, um, I went to exercise in, in uh, Philadelphia to see what exercise is all about, to meet Steve. And that night when I walked in, Helson was just there from Hawaii, and he did he did a seminar, and um, that was that was '95, and he was the first Gracie that I met, and I just fell in love with jujitsu. And Steve Maxwell opened the door for me to get out into Torrance so I could train with Orion and Hoist and Elio Gracie when he stopped by in the instructors program. I know that. Um over at Maxercise, I was talking to uh, Steve Bauer today and uh, Rick McCulley's wife, and um, there's that was an interesting place because I think there were it was a place of some challenge matches and stuff back in the day. Yes, uh, yes, we Steve Maxwell is about a blunt dude when it comes to uh, telling people how, what he thinks and his beliefs, and he was very unique. Even today, he's very unique. And yes. He, he had a, a really interesting culture that he created at Maxercise, and it was that that era where um, you know the Ultimate Fighting Championship had just started, and Steve was training with the Gracie with Hoist and Orion and all that stuff before the UFC. And the Gracie Challenge was a real thing, and we kind of uh, we did the Gracie Challenge in Philadelphia. So every Saturday morning or a random Tuesday. There was always somebody coming in to challenge what, you know, street fighters and karate guys, all styles under the sun. And uh, I was very young. I was like 16, 130 pounds, and I had to train with all the adults, and it was it was tough. And uh, 
my senior year of high school, I had work study and my, my guidance counselor said that I could leave school early to go to Maxercise because that's what I wanted to do with my life. So I got out of school every day. So sophomore, junior, and then senior year, I just trained all uh, all the time. And I got that, that nickname, Little Tony, and I became the skills assessor. So some guys would come in. They didn't want to take the advanced. They, they wanted to do the advanced class, but Steve would throw me uh, towards these guys. And we'll, we'll see how what martial arts you know. Just roll with Little Tony. So <laughs> pretty cool. And it's so, amazing how people think that that their skill set transitions well into jujitsu when it <laughs> literally has no overlap whatsoever. No, definitely not back then. For sure, yes. I'm sure not back. Then. I mean, unless you were a wrestler, I mean, you obviously had something. But if you weren't a wrestler, you pretty much didn't have any, right? Uh, yes, there was always there was always like a time uh, like if there were five minutes there was a, always like a time where the wrestler would eventually get tired or he was able to get swept or something like that. It all depends on the size of the, we had like three guys and I I still think to this day you have to have this this in your your martial arts school. The enforcer who was like the real big guy and we had a big blue belt named Andre Apaku. And actually, he, he's a, a doctor in Miami now. He trains with the Valenci brothers and everything. But back then, he was a big guy. He had his own mat, side of the mat, and that was Andre's mat, his side right there. The walls were padded. And he was this really big white belt, and eventually we became blue belts. It took a long time, but you know, he was the enforcer. And then there was uh, someone like a Phil Miglarese who was like the essence of jiu-jitsu. He could... Uh, he could he could prove that jujitsu really worked with technique. And then, you know, you had like a little guy like me or something like that, that could, well, if that little kid can do it, I'm going to do it. So we had that. And then everybody in between, everybody was tough back in Philly. We had the, we had really good conditioning because Steve was a wrestler and he made us go and he was in fitness and he made us just really work out. So I always felt we had a competitive edge going against the guys in California. And then I showed up in California. So. <laughs> and the little guy yeah, he, whose education was going to be on the mats ended up getting a master's degree in teaching, right, Tony? <laughs> yeah, I mean, for real, it was uh, something that I always loved to do. And then I figured out I was really good at teaching this. And it was something that I finally could help adults and everybody else, my peers. And it's something that I wanted to study in school. So it was uh, a no-brainer for me to make the transition to education and, and learn. So, And to continue, go all the way to the master's degree. That's pretty awesome, man. Um, and I know there is a history. You told me about painting Hoist Gracie's house or something. And so I, I'm not sure. I guess through your connection with Steve Maxwell, you yeah, met. Yeah, I mean, the... uh, once I made it to California, it was all you know. It was on me. I had to you know, prove my worth and my level at the time. I think I was like a three, third degree blue belt or something like that. And um, and I was there by, I was by myself at that time. There were, all the guys from Philly didn't come out yet, Phil and Ricky and whoever else was uh, ventured out. And uh, my class, I was there for like two years and a half and, you know, riding my bike. And I have all I have crazy stories. But by the time I was from 19 to 21, it was just wild. And <laughs> what, and what years were those? It was um, – I just had a conversation with a guy at the Hickson seminar this past week. He was naming all these guys, and I'm like, "Yeah, man, those all those guys came and went through the through the program." And uh, I graduated '97. I was out in there '97, '98, '99. Okay. 
So that would be a little after, like Mark Lehman was in the program. When I when I first came to Torrance in '90s in eleventh the senior year, of my eleventh grade, Mark Lehman and uh, and and uh, Rose's daughter's uh, father, Ethan, Ethan Milius. Ethan and all these guys, they had just left and it was it was a big it was a big I, I felt like I didn't even know what was going on with like all the, the politics within that school and I, I could tell something big was happening and then the whole uh Beverly Hills Jiu Jitsu opened up and it was all over Black Melt magazine, all these different instructors from different styles are gonna be there. So it was I felt it was pretty revolutionary at that time to have an academy in the States with that many different styles and high level guys that had had gained all that exposure through the UFC or through the Valley Tudo. And, you know, the, the Gracie said, ah, the train keeps rolling, but it, it, I think it was a big hit because a lot of their guys went, went off for, for whatever reason it was. This is wild, man. The amount, like I'm, I'm kind of sitting back getting an education and everything that I don't know, which could fill volumes, uh, about SoCal and the origins of jujitsu. So this is, it's fascinating. Um, I was kind of curious, did, do you recall the first time that you rolled with Hicks and or somebody, and was that a seminal moment or was it just like, okay, I'm slapping hands with another great black belt and who cares? Well, um, to, to meet Hicks and that took me 20 years of jujitsu dedication or more. Mm -hmm. And, um, that didn't happen because he, Hickson's very unique to, I would say Elio Gracie's sons, they're all pretty much, they're all very unique, but Hickson has a, he has a different, his own approach to jujitsu and he's, you know, his, his, his lifestyle and, and how difficult it was. And back, let me put a perspective. I was with Elio Gracie and Helson and, um, Hoist and Horion and all the brothers like that. But I, I never got to train with Hoyler till years later or Holker would be like a seminar. And when I talk about training with someone, it's not just like, oh, I dropped in, I had a, a class or a workshop. It's, it's taking the time to learn their curriculum. And, um, you know, that may take six months, a year, or two years, or, or whatever. But it's, you know, the and what I mean by that is when they start repeating the, the curriculum over again, it's like, oh, I, I saw that. I mean, every time it's going to be different, but, you know, you kind of get a good grasp of, of their personal curriculum in jiu-jitsu. And um, Hickson had... Back then, he had his own association, and we—I wasn't part of the association, so I, I could never go to his his seminars if they came to New Jersey or something like that. And uh, I, I mean, I always wanted to. He was—he was the guy that I idolized the most, and he—I I make an expression that Hoist Gracie got me into jujitsu, but Hickson made me want to learn everything about jujitsu, and I—I I always wanted to train with him, and my—I mean, I literally uh, knocked on his door if you will and he gave me five minutes of time and that five minute five minute conversation went into like over an hour and it was uh, an opportunity for me to to meet with him again in brazil and and meet carlos gama and the the three of us we would you know develop this jiu-jitsu global federation and with that i i remember like it all like going back to los angeles and having everything materialize and i was trying to get something to eat at the, uh, the supermarket and I had this can of soup in my hand and I was just thinking about I'm finally going to be able to train with Hickson after all this time and everything that just happened all the 
I mean, there were like acts of God for, for Hickson to come back to the States, you know, things that <laughs> happened with like the wildest stories, like, uh, you know, I can never get into, but he, he was going to be, he was going to be in Los Angeles again. I was there. We're all going to have this time. And, you know, part of that process was, you know, almost a year before the Federation launch was to learn from him philosophically, get to know him as a person. And then, uh, of course, when I started to get the opportunity to come over his house to, you know, pick his brain and get all my work done and start talking about jujitsu, and then, you know, finally, you know, I got to, he, you know, he put my, his hands on me and I started to learn jujitsu, and um, of course, when he got his mats at his house, that was like now I got to roll a little bit, and then when mats arrived to the federation, it was, it was a long time, and I, I can remember several private lessons that we had and a few others that were okay Tony what do you want to do what do you want to learn and I had had so much experience in in jiu-jitsu and, and uh, like reading the stories and knowing the, the histories of you know, high level black belts and world champions and what what it able to do them in specific positions and he, he would put me in those positions and the same things were happening to me. And I was a whole, like a, a, another generation that could tell the tale, you know, and then finally you get the role and it was really cool. I had so much fun and uh, I'll never forget that type of stuff. I'm, you know, I'm rolling and the, the private lesson would go over like an hour and a half and in the two hours and I'm like, man, I just got to roll a Hickson for an hour. <laughs> wow. Something that costs, you know, a few hundred bucks for most people. Yeah, but uh, I don't even think he would do that for people for money. It was a Monday, and he would call me every morning at 10 a.m., how's it going, and let's do it again on Thursday. So there there was a lot that happened before the Federation launched, and then I had a whole other year with the the Federation. It's it's unbelievable, man. It's it's, – people say, did you get to learn from him? Yes. If you get to, you know, pick his brain on curriculum, Yes. And then did you get to roll? And it's some, you should see some of the world champions that asked me that. Kind of like shocked, man. It's really cool. Let me ask you really quick. I just want to, uh, and I, I think Brent has something, but I just want to say, is there a story uh, where he went to Japan with Crone and Andre Galval wanted to see Hickson's mount? Or something like that? Was there some? Is that, am I making that up? You're not making it up. Uh, I don't know what Brent has. I don't matter. It's not. Like I don't that. have that. I didn't. I don't know it about the story at all. Yeah, I'm a, there is a story there, and okay. um, I, I was I was told that story not from Hickson or from Crone, but it was from uh, one of uh, Andre Gavel's black belts. Okay. And uh, it, it was an it was it's an interesting it was an interesting discussion because it was real. And uh, the, the black belt that told me was, you know, skeptical. As many people can, I, hey man, you can be skeptical. That's that's fine. I don't. That's cool. I but it's it's cool when you, you go, okay. So, so what did Andre say? You know, and he said, no man. Uh, and and it's also it's Hicks and Gracie at his age now, not <laughs> yeah, ago or twenty years ago or 30, you know, five back surgeries and yeah. It's it's like that, and his black belt basically told me that uh, 
you know, Andre was there and, and he said, Hey man, how, how good, how good was it? Like, what was it all about? And, uh, Andre basically, and the guy was like, no, no bullshit, man. Like, tell me the truth. And Andre kind of said to him, like, you know, if Hickson were to compete today, you know, it would be very difficult for him to win, you know, the guys against like Bichetta because he has, there's a time limit. The guys are really hip to the sport and the points and all that. He said, but man, he said, nobody's going to be able to hold him down. And what he meant was whatever happened in that session was Hickson laid down and said, okay, hold me down like cross side or something like that. And that's, that's what I experienced when he, um, and, and it's even, even Crone too, because that's what the, what's so beautiful about Crone is like you train with him and it's, I don't even know what, what I could do. He, he can put me in any position and I can't even hold him down and he just keeps going. And if he wants to tap me, he just keeps tapping me, tapping me, tapping me. And it's, it's just amazing when you can, you can be in positions that you do very well and then people just take you right out of them. And you, like you, you didn't have a chance from, from the minute you, you were in the position, just like if you take Hickson's back, and this is this is the story, and I, and I know like this story has been told many times with di- many people from different generations, and Hickson will let you start from his back, and he can put his hands in his belt, and he'll take the position away from you like that, and you will not have a chance to do any single thing, and it, and it's 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 not sometimes it's like okay go, he'll he'll tell you to say go, it's not like a fast thing. And it's just, it's a beautiful thing because when it's happening to you, it's like, I feel exactly like the stories that I've heard. So he did it to you. And yeah. I mean, he, name a position. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. In the story with Andre, it was cool because it was a black belt. That, one of his black belts that was skeptical. He told me the story and I can relate to it because it doesn't matter. It's like, he's, it's, it's very difficult to hold Hickson down, even at his, 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 his present time right now. At 57 or 58 years old. You get into, okay, what what are you doing? And then he starts to expose the details. And it's like, what the, oh my God, you know, like, all right, now, now I can understand a little bit more. So with that being said, you know, you mentioned Crone. Um, I had read an interview with Crone. Um, it was like a surf, skate, jujitsu kind of interview with him where he had talked about, and this might have been like two or three years ago, where he hadn't actually trained with Hickson all that much. Um, he said, I, I think less than 50 times on the mat with him at, at an academy, but more just like tips and pointers. Um, is, is there any, you know, I don't know if there was a slant to that article or not, but um, do you think that that is true? And if so, is is that a testament to Hickson's ability to um, teach his stuff to like Henry Aiken, who then was able to, to give it on to Crone. I read that. I read that article, and I, I was I was that that article came out, and Crone and Hickson, and they were all they were. Um, I guess it was like when Crone was training for the Abu Dhabi. Yes, that was it. Was around that time, and and I would be at Hickson's place on in Santa Monica on a Thursday or something like that. And Crone would come home from training, kiss his father. And that's how I first met Crone was basically being in the, the place in Santa Monica. And then, um, the next time I would meet Crone was in Japan. And, uh, so I had always met Crone 
through his father. And uh, I, I met Crone in between the, the Japan at one of the events. Maybe it was Metamorris or it was some type of expo. Maybe, you know, the expos that were happening in L.A. at that time. Yeah, like the one where he fought Andy Wang. Yeah, that or it was like the World Expo or something like that. Yeah. And, and I was kind of like going towards the escalator and Crone was coming down and we kind of made eyes and he just he pulled me aside because I really didn't know him yet. You know, and he just looked at me and he just he said that he was really happy that this this project was materializing. He thanked me for you know my energy in that, and I really I really liked that. You know, I thought that was really cool of him. And it was and, the fitness expo I think that you guys are talking about, where they had the Gracie like, Worlds and all that stuff. Or expo or something. Yeah. But the, fitness. But, but the point is yeah. to all this is I had only saw. Uh, like a loving father to his son and a mutual respect. Like, I, I don't know, like, what I, like, before that, I, I saw Crone at like a, before, before I met him, I had saw him, like, on videos and stuff like that. But the last time I saw him was at a Joe Marrero event in California when I was, you know, in high school. And he was a little kid. Okay. You know, and and I would also see his son, his brother Hoxon fight, and I thought Hoxon was like a purple belt, and he was like amazing back then. I was like, this is this is going to be the guy. So I don't know the the how many times he trained, and I read that article, and I was like, that's I mean, I doubt it. I, I doubt it because there's a, there's a it's like a you know it gets into the the family and all that stuff, and I mean I can say for myself as a as a just a practitioner that. If you hang out with Hickson and get you get to pick his brain on jiu-jitsu for like an hour, it's like hanging out with someone for ten years. He just helped he just helped jujitsu for the last ten years. And and you get this it's like a, a certain type of wisdom in life when you meet someone that's the real deal. They'll give you they'll give you ten years of experience in one hour. And if I had access to Hickson fifty times going up as a purple belt or a blue belt or whatever, and then also having access to, and this is this is the even bigger point, for me to, to to learn and be to understand Hickson's curriculum, I had to be, I had to ask other of his black belts, you know, I had to ask uh, people that were at Crohn's, and Hickson was teaching, but they were black belts at Hickson's, and they were used to this, so if Hickson creates a culture of this approach and crone is living in that culture i feel he's training more with hickson than anybody like right it's about the culture that's created and i, I come home freaking dad's right there on the couch and he's like what happened today and it's not only about the confidence when hickson can give you a like a technique and it like will improve your like you know make the weapons that you're using like much better but also the mindset and the, on a tactical level you walk out of that room like, I can't wait to, to challenge my next guy. I have so much confidence right now. I don't know. Maybe it's because I idolize him all this stuff. But when I got off the like, off the mat the next day, I was like so pumped and I had so much confidence. And uh, it's all very important because it's it's tapping into a mindset. Right. I just want to interject this, and I've said this to both of you guys. You're not going to be surprised, but I just want to sort of add on to it. With the Brazilian culture the way it is and the blood, the blood means everything. Like, for example, me and my brother might talk once a year. 
and at this point you know we really don't care it's not not that big a deal but if you ask my wife and you ask her like about all her friends from the UFC and the famous people she's met she doesn't give a shit about anybody more than she gives a shit about her family her family is more important to her in you know in her little barrio there in in uh more than anybody on earth and and that's just the way it is and I've told you from the beginning without knowing Hicks and Orcrone at all, I'll bet you he's told things to his son that he hasn't told anybody and that he may never tell anybody. And I'm quite certain that his son has gleaned quite a bit from him regardless of how many formal training sessions they've had. Um, and that's just my opinion based on nothing but just the Brazilian culture and what I suspect. That's interesting. Um my my wife's Brazilian, like one hundred percent carioca, and you know from Rio. And she she told me today it was funny. She's like, uh, today we had what was called uh, Wingman Day. So I, I last week they're like, what are you guys gonna do for Wingman Day? And you had to take one of the guys with you or a bunch of group and uh, take them out to show them what you do. And a lot of guys were like, I'm all gonna go paintballing, or you know maybe they're gonna play video games. I don't know. So I, I put my card on the table. I said, listen, we're going to do combatives on base. We're going to do no-gi jiu-jitsu on Monday. You know, who wants to come? And uh, one of the guys like, I'm a wrestler. I'm going to come. And he didn't, he didn't, he didn't text me. He didn't uh, call me. And my wife was like, today, she's like, I, I don't understand Americans sometimes. Like, in Brazil, our culture, like she said, like the seminar just happened with Hickson. You know, you, if, you, if you're telling someone that, that it's going to happen, you don't. You don't even have to tell them. You just grab them and you say, "Let's go." Like that's you gotta. You gotta tell people that there's something happening. You gotta go and you just grab your friend. You go. That's what Brazilians do. And I thought it was so funny. I go. I go, babe. I just. I told the guy to show up and he didn't show up. And I. And she said, "And, and your friend Doug. He should. He should train jujitsu today too. He's. We're right there. Just grab him. You know." And I go, baby. That's not how. How people are, you know. It's not T- how we Tony, do. I know one American who would have went to the seminar with you for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought, it, I thought it was pretty funny because she, you know, she's simulating like this is what we do. We just you do it. We just grab people and we just go. This is what Brazilian people do. And, uh, I thought I think it's pretty funny when you start looking at the different cultures and blood and everything like that. But a lot of people don't want to swallow their pride in coming and getting their. Uh, their ass handed to them on the mat is something that they have to face and they don't want to face that and all of us have been there i mean you guys have been there many hundreds of times more than i and i've been training since 2010 um as you know you go you go to jujitsu and you come home and you you literally got to dust yourself off and go well i didn't do so very well today i got to come back and do better next time. A lot of people just don't want to have that conversation with themselves. Um, I have one question, and uh, let and uh, Brent can piggyback on it. What does Hickson still have to give to jujitsu at this point today? I have an answer. I have an answer, um, uh, which is my own answer. Um, not knowing Hickson, but nothing. Uh, I, I don't think, like, I know there's the whole giving back thing. There's a lot of talk about Hickson. He doesn't have videos. Right? I mean, that was part of the, actually, your, I think your mission statement is you guys were going to kind of curriculum, create a curriculum there. Um, 
But he, overall, he doesn't have instructionals out there. I think Budo Videos was like one of the first times it was open to a wide audience, uh, some of his, his teaching methodology. Yes. But I think that there there is this concept that every like people should just give away their stuff for free to everyone and anyone. Um, and I do it a little bit. I put some YouTube videos out there, but I, I need marketing. Hickson doesn't need marketing. Um, and I think that like as far as what he needs to do for the community is he's taught a whole bunch of people. He has a whole bunch of black belts. His legacy has already been created. What if he just wants to sit back and surf now that's on him. It's his life and he gets to live it. And I, I feel like people like want Hickson to do all this stuff for jujitsu, but it's like, you know, let the guy, he, he's done a ton of stuff, you know, his, his influence is, is everywhere. And if he wants to sit back and not do anything, and if he doesn't want to teach people, who don't have enough like uh, gumption to go actually see him in person the way that Tony did. I think that's, that's perfectly okay. That's, that's his thing, you know? And by um, the way, if, if you want to get some of Brent's teaching, it's graciebaja72.wordpress.com. That's graciebaja72.wordpress.com. And you can get some of professor Brent Littell's uh, teaching from a Gracie Baja and 10th planet black belt. I digress. But, go ahead. Tony. Yeah. Your website is a is a dot wordpress dot com. Yeah. Oh, yes. yeah. I know. I'm doing I'm doing wonderful stuff here on the internet. Um, I'm, I'll tell you why. I haven't. I'm in the process of opening a gym, but I haven't solidified the location yet. So I uh, don't want to create a uh, a a website quite yet. Um, when I I don't want to keep changing website names and so forth. So. Yeah, yeah. Plus, it's it's really just to uh, to guide people to my YouTube page and so forth. So. Ah, very good. And and uh, now you already have another person you could have come and do a seminar, Brent, <laughs> Mr. Prasinski. <laughs> yeah. So, um, um, I, mean, I, I think that's a good that's a good place to start. What when, when to answer that question, and mm -hmm. uh, when you just say what the what does Hickson have to give to the the jujitsu community, and it, he could say nothing, nothing more. It's he's already done so much for jujitsu. But if you asked Hickson that question, his eyes will light up and he would speak about his, you know, his goals now. And the, the goals aren't you know, to, be, to, to step back in the ring and be a fighter and all that, all that stuff is behind him. But uh, this weekend, and this is what I mean I can relate, he, he's, he, towards the end of the questions and answers went at, a, at a seminar in Daytona, he, he said, my, my time now my, is to, to be alive with the, the mission of the JJGF, like the Federation, and this is this, uh, this is his opportunity to to give his 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 experience with with the teaching and and just you know he he's such a unique person, especially when you get all these different masters and all these different people. It's like when Hickson has something to say, people people listen, and uh, you know there's a value there. And of course, he has an amazing value with with uh, the, to the techniques and everything like that. So, the JJGF is a great platform for Hickson and others to, you know, spread and make because Jiu-Jitsu has the effectiveness of Jiu-Jitsu, and it's just it's not, how can we make Jiu-Jitsu around the world like the most popular martial art? And that, that's what Hickson's all about these days, trying to help everyone. Well, I think it's certainly the fastest growing martial art in the world, and uh, and it should be. And I'm in the position to tell parents about it that 
um, you know, where I work and things like that. And they think you're selling them a line of goods. And it's like, no, really, I really mean it. Your child will be a different child after they go through this training. And, um, and you'll see that the benefits you're going to get is better than having some kid running around with a Taekwondo black belt around some yogurt stand here in Southern Cal, um, which is ridiculous. But, uh, I, I, you know, I want to uh, transition away, uh, and feel free to, uh, work back to Hicks and Gracie at any point. I, Go ahead. <laughs> I, I wanted to say one thing is, um, just in talking to you, uh, Tony and, and just, Overall, in the community, when I say nothing, part of what I mean is I feel now that Hickson's, for for some reason, when people bring up his name now, his legacy, it, it's really strong with the, with high up people in the community who know who he is. But it's a little bit under attack, and people have to defend it now. Like um, the you know people have taken a turn on Hickson in terms of the mystique of oh I'm tired of hearing about his mystique and I'm tired of of hearing this. Um, and so like, just in, do you ever feel that way that like in speaking about Hickson, that there is like this contingency of people who are, I think they want to live in denial of the fact of like the, ta the true talent that he and, and visionary and tactician that he is because of either jealousy or whatever it may, may be. I mean, that that's valid because it's, there's a whole bunch of people that start jujitsu every day. They don't know how to tie their belt. And, uh, they don't know the Gracie, like who who's Hoist Gracie. They don't know who it is. Like, I'm sure there's a lot more people that that start jujitsu and they, they'll follow someone like the Mendez brothers or uh, some so one of the newest guys. That, however, they get attention. You know, if uh, to follow jujitsu specifically, jujitsu, not like uh, MMA or something like that. So right. I understand that what you're saying about uh, Hickson and like a, like an older generation, how his you know, how well, how much respected he is, everything like that. But um, I don't feel like when someone at this point in my life and and uh, the experiences that I have had with him specifically and continue to have, I don't I don't feel I need to defend him or uh, any any type of attack from someone that criticizes. And I'm going to tell you why, because there's there's two examples that I can, I want to give you right now, and one is uh, I'm I'm a really big fan right now of uh, of John Workman, I'm sorry John Maxwell, who is like wrote many books on leadership, and one of one of his books and he speaks all over the all over the world to the military, in the United States, and and the Air Force is a big advocate of his work. We have to do different things like that, workshops and things like that. He wrote a book that. The, the 21 irrefutable laws of leadership. And he, he, he told the story that one of, um, one of his critics arrived at his, his book signing or at his event. And the guy said, ah, I don't agree with, with, this, with, this, uh, the, with this law of leadership. And, and John Maxwell said, I don't care. It's a law. You can... <laughs> It's the law. You either follow it or you don't. You don't follow it. You're going to break the law. You're going to get the result. And I thought that was a funny story because when someone criticizes Hickson in my in on social media or it, to me, like on the mat, on the mat, it's easy because I can say, okay, show me what you what you're talking about, and I I can 
teach the teaching pedagogy like Hickson now in certain positions. You know, not all, not everything has to be taught like Hickson, but in certain moments, I, I know what I want to teach, and I'm teaching, and that, and that expression at that moment is the principle of jiu-jitsu. I'm not teaching a technique based on physicality or, or strength or a trend or a, a, a type of, I need a special type of grip or something like that. I'm teaching the principle, or Hickson is teaching the principle. So at that point, it's not even about Hickson anymore. He's teaching the, assess, the, essence, the essence of the art, the principles that are going to last from today until the next 20 years and forever. And if you want to criticize that, you don't know what you're talking about. And the second point that John Maxwell would say is like, why do people keep, why do you, like he was saying, people that are tour guides and they have taken people up to the top of the mountains and the, the interviewer is saying, why do you keep taking people up to the top of the mountain? Why do you keep doing that? Like, don't you think it's dangerous? Why are you going to go up? What are you, why are you going to do that tomorrow? Why do you want to take more people to the top of the mountain? And then finally, the tour guy says, listen, if you've got to answer a question, if you've got to say a question like that to me, you've never been to the top. And that's it. I think those are intelligent words uh, uh, to describe it in a very accurate answer to uh, to his question. Uh, to me, he's was and is the most fascinating guy in jiu-jitsu, and I'm a newcomer at six or seven years, however long it's been since I started rolling in, uh, in an academy now. And I, you know, Tony, I told you from day one, I was like, I can't believe when I met you, I'm like, you're working for Hicks and Gray. I mean, he's still the most compelling figure, and uh, anybody who doesn't understand it just doesn't understand the lineage of jiu-jitsu, and they're from the you know, cell phone, you know, Game Boy, PlayStation uh, nation, where if you can't go and see a bunch of YouTube videos on the guy, then then he must, what he's teaching must be bullshit. So that's, you know, you don't really need to answer people like that. You just kind of turn around and walk away. Um, but uh, one thing I do want to talk to you guys about, and I, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. Stop you from there. What's that? What's really cool about it, I mean, of course, you have the Gracies have always had like the challenge, the other martial arts, like Hickson wants to express that to people. He wants to help it. So if people like I've always had to play with the riddle, like, man, what are the new generation guys going to think? What are the old guys generation? What are the, the current guys? And I'm just I just kind of like made the understanding one day. I was like, I, it doesn't matter if, if this information it, it gets out to the public it's going to make everybody's jujitsu better. It just will. And people will respect it. And then it was, then I was having conversations with like the modern tech, the modern positions versus the, the classic or traditional positions. And then trying to find the, the common threads. And it's like, man, we can just keep going with everything. We could, it could, it could really improve the effectiveness of jujitsu. And, and it doesn't have to be called, well, this is because it's self-defense or this is because it's sport. When you're on the mat with Hickson and you're and you're learning this material, it transcends all of that. It becomes it's yes, there's stand, it works. there's stand up principles, but it's the core positions. And then those ideas and principles are are infused into the modern and it's like, what the what? this is this is insane. Well, yeah, it, it sounds like what you're saying is it stems out from that. Those positions, everything stems out. It doesn't matter if you're trying to score points or get an attacker off of you and sweep them, type thing. Yeah, but th I think that, well, again, when we talk about mindset and tactical ideas of things, 
And I think this is what Hickson's whole thing about the sport right now. It's how people will, you know, like stalling versus committing yourself and moving towards hitting the gas pedal and moving towards the submission. And when you start to improve your, your fundamentals and your, your core techniques and you feel different in those positions, you, you start to fight for other things. You start to fight for, you know, moving towards the end goal, whatever that's going to be. Like moving towards the, the guy's neck, but moving towards his arm instead of just pausing. And, and sometimes maybe that's just because you're, you're better than the guy or whatever. But when you can start to get to positions and, and dominate, and, and dominate much differently than you did before, like, yeah, I was a black belt for the last three years, but now I'm a black belt with, with these insights and this information, every one of your fundamental techniques, every submission that you can think of is improved with the principles of jujitsu, which means I'll break it down for you. The leverage that you understand now is even better. Is even better. The weight distribution that you have now is even better. It's enhanced. Everything gets enhanced. It's like you're seeing jujitsu again with new eyes and new lenses because you're seeing finally the principles in what you're doing, and it's not based on speed and 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 not and doing more and doing more jujitsu. Because sometimes we'll get to the, to the back and then we got to change the position to the arm locker. It's like, no, man, what's wrong with your collar choke right now? Why isn't it working? And it's, it's, it's a way of thinking. It's a way of learning. And it's how it's presented. And it's there. It's going to, it's going to happen. Well, you, you bring up um, kind of an interesting point about Hickson's idea um, of point jujitsu. Um, right now, you know, you have a couple of tournaments like uh, EBI where they're moving towards submission only. And I would be curious to hear about Hickson's opinion of the actual jujitsu there, because a lot of it I've heard from people before regarding Hickson's philosophy. And you can always correct me. is just the idea that you always want to move forward through a position. So if I'm passing guard, I, I move forward to half guard and then I move forward to side control, but I never want to move backward back to half guard from side control back to full guard from half guard, just kind of um, that idea. And as we're seeing in EBI, I'm, and, you know, coming from Eddie Brava background, I still, you know, I don't like saying this, but I don't like the jujitsu there because I think, I agree more with Hickson on this is we want to move toward the, you know, I, the, I think the ultimate position is mount or back mount. And in EBI guys are just laying on the floor, takes eye control on me, uh, laying on the floor. We're going to play footsies and I get on top of you and then I don't like, I'm not able to pass your guard. So let me just fall over and play, play footsies with you on bottom. And then you don't like it and you fall. And then we just see a position exchange where no one cares about solidifying position which you wouldn't think would necessarily happen because you would want guys to get to that mount position. But so many people have gotten so weak at finishing from mount um, and finishing from the back that they have to play these alternative games. So I, um, it's like the philosophy is there behind something like EBI where it's like we want to move towards submission. But people are gaming the system in a way that the jiu-jitsu isn't looking the way we would want to or we theorized it would look when – coming up with the idea of submission only yes um that, that's 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 good points and when you when you when you talk about trying to establish the mount or the back mount and and someone it's it's difficult to hold the, the mount 
right? If you're you're just going from position to position, you're just playing. I would just say you're playing games. You know, you're mm-hmm. not, you're not basically. And it really comes down to you're not dangerous. You're not in that position. You're not dangerous. You're not putting any pressure to threaten that person's life, and you're not putting any pressure to to get in that person's mindset that they're nervous that you're going to break their arm or you're going to choke them, like that type of pressure. Right. And when, when we say when we say that you know Hickson likes the idea of the sport of people to move forward and solidify positions, Hickson wants that, of course, but. What has to happen is that people need to move in with the idea that they are dangerous in any position that they're in. And as you get dangerous in only a few, the other ones you kind of you, you game the system like you're talking about, you're going to be just reaching the little games that you play in the gym. And you're going and then that type of that type of confidence, like maybe I, I don't like I have an example of uh, this one black belt, he's a smaller black belt. And I, I, my, my eyes were like really adjusted to this by now about seeing like what I was fighting for and all these things. I was never, I'm never really good at that. Like I always heard like Carlson was really good at like taking a student and like hiding their weaknesses and then just really exposing their strengths. And it's like, man, it's like a really good coach or really good mentor or a good jiu guy. I, I, I wasn't really good at that. Like, going through the belts. I was always like, well, this is how I do it. I'm really small. And I didn't want to infuse like my way on like big people or anything like that. But when I understood, when I started to understand the principles of jujitsu and how to be, how to execute with, to be dangerous, I could see in my own technique or in others where they were not going all the way to the finish line. And the one black belt, I said, why are you not like getting to the mountain and doing the arm bar? Like, why would you, why would you only play half guard and only do the sweep and then guard pass? Like, and he just said to me, he said, man, when I get those big guys in the arm lock position, I can't pull it off. Yeah. I'm just like, well, and he said, yeah, I don't want to lose the position. I don't want to do it. And it's like, man, that's, that's crazy. Like, let's look at what, why you're not being able to do that. And I showed the guy one thing from the arm lock catch. And he was like, oh, my God. And it was, okay, he was like, he just looked at me and he said, that's the invisible jiu-jitsu. And he was like, that's, that's amazing. Tony, and are you free for a private tomorrow? No. <laughs> no, I'm not. But the point, the point is, he now became dangerous in that position. And that was a fundamental position that we do every single day, the catch position where the guy's resisting the arm lock from the mount. You swung your leg around right. in the catch position. That position, you put the strongest guy in the gym. Go, go in your test yourself. Go into the gym and grab three guys that are the strongest guys and have them start on their best grip. Maybe the figure four, they grab their bicep. And you watch everybody. You watch everybody in the gym. There are people that are going to get the arm lock or there are people that are going to lose the arm lock. And the people that are getting the arm lock, they're going to do one of the 12 or half a dozen or a dozen moves to break the grip, right? And and that's very valid to know all those little tricks, right? Yes. Yes. Because that's jujitsu. You're going to learn jujitsu and you're going to learn all these moves and all these things. And you're going to kind of gravitate towards the ones you like. And you, I, when the guy holds like this, I'm going to break the grip like this. He holds like that, I'm going to grip it. So that, that's, that's good to have all that knowledge. Hickson put me in that position one time. And he said, just take my arm. And I couldn't straighten it out. Right? I couldn't straighten out his arm. And at one point, and he's, he's still physically strong. I, he, he didn't even holding anything. He was like, and he, he just hit me with the, 
this is unacceptable. And I, I knew at that moment, like, oh man, I just, I just messed up. I don't, <laughs> I, I try to do all these things and he wasn't, he can't get it to go straight. And he said, lay down. And he showed me a technique that relies on the principles of base, leverage, and you put, and maximum leverage. And it's just like, what the, the what the, why has this never been taught? And it makes your arm, arm bar catch position dangerous, which means the guy doesn't have time to grab his collar, put the foot between your, his, your, his foot in there into the half guard. He doesn't have time to bridge over your, your, your leg, and he doesn't have time to twist the arm and all this other crap. If you can put yourself in position to be dangerous, the guy doesn't have time to think. And if you're in the mount and you're, you're making yourself dangerous and threatening a person's life, you're going to get the choke, you're going to get the arm lock, you're going to get a, a, a better position instead of just going through the motions of jiu-jitsu. Of, okay, I reached it, the guy elbow escaped, let me get out of the half guard, let me do more and more and more. And maybe if I just know more jiu-jitsu than this guy, I'll eventually win because I'll make him tired. That has nothing <laughs> to do with this moving in danger, being dangerous. It's, you know, what you're telling us is everything that every believer of Hicks and Gracie ever believed including myself, and if you're not a believer, you should believe in it because it just means that you weren't around when uh, when they developed all these 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 principles, the invisible jiu-jitsu that you that you speak of. So uh, so you know, I'll book my private with you when you come back to California. But um, I I want to ask a question to both of you just to sort of uh, stitch back to the question about passing guard and no gi and s sort of take it down the road that Brent was going on, is that if, and I'll ask this to you first, Brent, and then I'll pass on to Tony, if you can leg lock a person when they're, you know, they're trying to pass your guard and you can get a heel hook or a leg lock, does it matter that they can pass your guard? If you can well, submit them that way. So you, you're saying if I'm on bottom and I can leg lock the guy... Mm -hmm. Does it matter if he was able to pass my guard if I wasn't allowed to leg lock him? Yeah, like for example, you've seen you've seen um, you know Eddie Cummings where he'll you know he'll sit he'll sit down into guard. You'll come in, he'll drag your knee into the honey hole, and then from there he has you defending a foot lock. And and so does it does it matter that he's not trying to pass your guard and threaten your life as I believe Hickson would have. Well, Okay, so first, I never want to hear the term "honey hole." I hate when I hear it. I, I'm I just. Know, I know it's not your term. I know it's not your term. I just, I can't, I can't stand it. Okay. But, um, it's it's nothing. It's my own quirk. Okay. I think it's no, okay for the for the moment of that match. I don't think it's important because he won that match. Okay. But when you want to look at making your game as well rounded as possible, and then being able to um, disseminate your jujitsu to other people i think it's important in that sense is that your game should be well-rounded when we look i mean i can't talk about eddie cummings game because you know he has a, a a competition specific game where you know similar to what tony was talking about with with carlson is he took he takes certain uh strengths of his which is his butterfly guard arm drag to the back and then also his arm drag to the to the heel hook, and he maximizes their potential. So he may be excellent from all positions. 
Um, so I'm not talking about Eddie Cummings in particular. I'm saying the person who is only footlocking, I do think mm-hmm. it, it does matter about uh, his game just in general. If he's not strong everywhere, uh, in the long run, how will his students be? In the long run, how will his game be when people adjust to his game or he meets somebody who he can't heel hook because their passing style is such that their feet aren't exposed? Um, so I think I think in the moment, no. But overall, if your goal is to be a great jujitsu player, you should be able to be fantastic everywhere. I know I, that's an ideal. That's an ideal standard, and I understand that. But but I, I, I always just... want to shoot toward that. I'm just scribbling down a note right now. Do not say honey hole in front of Professor Brent rolling with him <laughs> Wednesday. <laughs> okay, got it. <laughs> so, so uh, <laughs> well, do we want do we want women in this sport, right? Yes. Do we want Okay, yes, we do. Do we want? Isn't part of what jujitsu is about, and part of what Hickson is is trying to bring back in jujitsu is self defense. Who comes to get self defense? Smaller, weaker people. Who's smaller? usually and weaker usually than men is women so a lot of these women come with a trauma uh may have a trauma history or may have certain feelings about um vulgar language and so terms like that (laughs) yeah for for that term to like to be disseminated amongst jujitsu is pretty bothersome and look in my past i've used some colorful language and and you know even up until today but there's a part of me that just when we look at jujitsu vocabulary and I'm, I'm i'm on my soapbox right now but I don't want to have that term out there. I wouldn't want to scream to my uh, 14-year-old female student, like, you know, we're in the honey hole or whatever. It's like, come on now. Yeah. And you bring up a very, very valid point. I was thinking of it in terms – I think I was thinking very Winnie the Pooh-ish, but no. Um, But that's a good point. Tony, um, I – I think Gordon Ryan displayed a very well-rounded game. I think he went through that last DBI, and for the last couple of matches, I don't think he hit a heel hook. I think he worked a Mataleo, and I can't remember his submissions, but I'm not sure that he hit a heel hook at all. But how do you feel about about that? About Does it matter if guys can leg lock? Do you want to answer the, the question that we asked Brent? Speak, can you speak in, speak up a little, Tony, or speak into the mic, please? Yes, there was. I liked his answer mm-hmm. because he, he said that it, it wasn't about one particular athlete that was good at leg locks. It was more about the person that's good at leg locks. Could they open a gym and be able to teach a well-rounded game to uh, their different students in the student body? And uh, this is a this is a big issue if you're trying to talk about any type of uh, technique in jujitsu, but more about the person and how they're able to touch the lives of many people. And if they can only influence people that are competitors, they're missing out on the, you know, the people that really need jujitsu, the, the smaller people, the ones that need the confidence, everything and the women and things like that for women specific self-defense. So it's very difficult to, to teach all those different demographics. If you're only one to focus on competitive jujitsu or something like that, like, uh, or very specific in one game where you're not well-rounded. And um, I like that answer. But it is, it is a great point. It's why we have him on the show. And, and I'll tell you a quick self-defense story about a footlock. I have a, a friend. He's a, a jiu-jitsu black belt. I, I don't want to use his name because I don't know how much he wants his story to be out there. But um, he was at a, a nightclub, and he got into a fight. 
Um, and he ends up in, in the guy's guard. It, it's not really a guard. It's, you know, he's between the guy's legs and the guy doesn't know what to do. And he's hitting the guy and he feels kind of bad hitting the guy because the guy just has no idea. So he's like, you know what, I'm just going to footlock him and, you know, and end the fight that way. So he sits back for the footlock and he starts really torquing on the foot and the shoe pops off and in this end he slides, <laughs> slides right off the shoe and slides the guy's sock slides right off and the guy's out of the footlock standing over him now and trying to hit him and he had to sweep him again and then get on top and hit him and it, it ended with the guy kind of begging for him to stop and he just felt bad for the guy so he did stop but um i always kind of am scared of like teaching uh like a heel hook for shoes because people don't tie their shoes really tightly and they do the shoes will twist and spin and you don't have the same uh, leverage. If we were wearing like uh, uh, combat boots that were laced up and like a part of your foot, then yes. But uh, that's my heel hook self-defense idea. <laughs> and it's, it's a great one as are most of your stories. And it, it, it really is not necessary to, you know, to do that in order to use your jujitsu to stop the situation. Um, if you're going to sit there and beat the hell out of someone, just say, okay, yeah, I wanted to beat the hell out of them because you know enough technique to immobilize a person and get him to verbally quit. It's just, the, you know, I mean, it's not like, you know, Damian Maya and Gunnar Nelson, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> um, anyway, um, but I want to, I, I, I want to ask you guys something. I just want to hit some quick hitters here and, and get your opinions on, on a couple of things. Um, as I look down the road, five years, ten years, you know, we're moving to this no-gi. We're going to talk about submission underground here in a minute or two. Um, and then we just, you know, have saw, you know, IBJJF, I guess, is as big as ever. You guys can correct me on that if I'm wrong. Um, do we see BJJ split into two factions, IBJJF versus no-gi? Or do, or do we think one or the other will will expand and the other will contract. Um, what's your thoughts on that, guys? Starting with you, Tony. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> the panel here. What's that? The panel here, the panel. Yes. <laughs> uh, I can almost like, at any point in what you're saying, I could stem off the, the last question about footlocks and how I feel about it in competition and things like that. Sure. Of course, I always, I always really love to try to predict where things are going to go. Like, even ten years ago, and there's certain things in this in this martial arts culture where I'm like, I can kind of like be on the cutting edge, or I was on the cutting edge to, to put out different products or study certain positions at the time. And I was like, it was like my little niche right there. I could, you know, develop products and things like that. And um, I don't, I don't, I don't. I'm not interested in that anymore. Like I'm just, it's just a different part time of my life now where I don't, I'm not, and, and I'm going to tell you what I'm interested in. And this is basically what, what I care about when the question is about leg locks. Are you still there? Yes. Yeah. We're listening to me. I, I want that person that does the leg lock, your friend in the club or, um, someone that does leg locks and doesn't do the guard pass and they, they I want to say, okay, how good is your foot lock? Is it dangerous? Will it break the guy's foot? Even yes. if he resists, that's what I'm interested in. And, um, when it, when it comes to, I, I, the whole, the, and the, the whole, like maybe like a year ago or 
there were so many people playing leg locks and it was like with the, with, uh, the, the EBI coming out and there were the different teams that did leg locks. I was so interested in, um, you know, if the person was going to tap on the first move or like their, their game, it was, you know, I was really interested because at that time, maybe like a year or two ago, my footlock became more dangerous than it ever had been. And I was like, this is really cool now. I can see what the guys are doing. And it was, you know, you could see like maybe that no good guys are going to train more no gi or the guys, the, the different, um, the way that the pro jiu-jitsu had developed with like Abu Dhabi and the Abu Dhabi pro and the IBJJF playing, paying money and, and different events that were in Brazil. It was like, man, and met, even Meta Morris at the time, it was, it was professional jiu-jitsu had, had exploded more so than it had ever been, you know, since it, they started to do sport jiu-jitsu competitions back in the, you know, the late seventies, eighties, it was like, there's money be going around and people were, the, the high level guys were being paid. And it's, it's just, it's, it's a great, it's a great time to do professional jujitsu and be an athlete more so than ever. But, you know, to me, I'm like, good. It's about time. Like there's so many people that have worked for, you know, those platforms and, and it, it's just, it's just really cool to see. But now at the end of the day, I'm around people in the military and they stay, they, they say, Oh, you do that jujitsu. Like they want to defend their family. They want to defend themselves. They're, they're here to serve their country. So I'm around a lot of people that are like, they want to, they want to learn jujitsu. Like I was exposed to it when I first started the first six to 10 months where I didn't even know what sport jujitsu was. It, that's how I was taught. I was taught in a self-defense ground fight, valley tudo, real fight situation. And that's cool to be around that type, those types of people because I have a lot of time to, to waste. And when I get in the gym and I play half guard with all the guys and they're playing the sport and doing all these things, I'm just a person that comes in and say, man, let's just make it dangerous. Let's make it, let's make your stuff better than before. Okay. Let's, let's try. And a lot of times that's, I, you don't have to do all this stuff. You don't have to do all this extra moves. Let's look at your core stuff. That's it. And then we, we can go far into everything, but that, that's kind of like where I'm going. And, and basically in the next 10 years, however, it, it expands the different sports and, and how the different venues are created. I just really would love to see people that there's good rivalries, you know, that, that not, not the type of robberies that are done through social media by talking trash, but guys that really go out there and, and give a good show because they, they have a friendly, like a heated rivalry. I think we need more of that. And my, my one advice for uh, like Eddie Bravo, because he did the combat jujitsu event recently, kind of brought it back up again. I would love for him to put a team together, a Luta Libre team and a, a jujitsu team. And just give, give, give me personally and, and people that know about this, give another attempt at the, the jujitsu Luta Libre rivalry. That's just me as a, as a fan. That would be really cool. Mm-hmm. Because there's a lot of tough guys that do Luta Libre and still believe in Luta Libre. And Luta Libre guys that when Abu Dhabi came, the Brazilians all came together. It was like a cultural thing. Like there was no more rivalry between Jiu-Jitsu and Luta Libre. But maybe there is. Let's, let's see some tough guys from Brazil come up and say we're Luta Libre or guys from Europe. And, and see if guys in Jiu-Jitsu are going to take off the gi and they think they're badass, let's see them do their fight. A real fight like uh, – I'm sorry, not the real fight, but like the, the combat Jiu-Jitsu. It's a really cool medium. And it could cause a lot of real excitement. So I think Eddie Bravo is, is, uh, has an interesting platform right now because he has 
our unique rule set for submission fighting, and he has the, the combat jiu-jitsu, which helps prepare people to step into the ring even more. So if, if that's the, if that's the uh, idea, I think it's great because now people can go in the gym and they can train all these different ways and have different platforms to, uh, to do jiu-jitsu and be effective at it. And that, that's probably what's going to happen. IBJJF, they, they can only keep expanding as much as they want. You, know, you can only do so much with a company. You, know, you got to start looking at like a professional wrestling model. You know, you're only gonna, you can, they've already done their big, their big push into all the different countries and things like that. It's now how, how the quality of the event. And um, I believe like Abu Dhabi Pro and I mean the Abu Dhabi like submission, the Nogi event, mm. they, they, they expanded and they went into different territories and put on some great shows and then some events where you're like, this is Abu Dhabi right now? They're doing like a, like a trials and this is what they did? So it becomes the quality of the event. And you'll be happy to know that uh, Brent, when he opens his academy, is going to also have rolling with uh, striking as well. So um, I'm kind of excited for that. Yeah, I, um, that is the essence of the art. Um, I think when you're asking about predictions for where everything is going, I am a, a horrible futurist. I didn't think Twitter would last. Um, <laughs> I've I've made so many mistakes when with oh the the camera phone I was like why do you need a camera on your phone that's stupid <laughs> so I'm not very good at predicting things um what I will say is there are some mediums we can use to kind of look at where people will spend their energies and I think Abu Dhabi Combat Club ADCC the the event that happens every two years um, is a good way to understand what is a, a really effective way to get great at jiu-jitsu so as long as gi players ibjjf champions are winning at abu dhabi as well i think we'll continue to see the ibjjf grow and kind of the the no gi side be a little bit um like the the pure no gi guys the be pushed aside a little bit because in the end some you know jiu-jitsu is about the proof is in the pudding so if all of the guys who are making the podium are guys who also wear the gi, then we're going to have to look at, okay, well, maybe, you know, there is something to gi training. Um, so I don't know that no gi is necessarily going to kind of eclipse gi unless it starts to really eclipse gi at that premier event. I don't see that necessarily happening. I don't see the uh, the top flight guys winning. You know, Kyotera made a quote about submission only and he's like the guys who win at submission only could or the guys who win the IBJJF World Championships would win at submission only as well. They're just great jiu-jitsu players. So um, as long as IBJJF is turning out great jiu-jitsu uh, players that are going to win at Abu Dhabi, I think that, you know, the gi will keep uh, no gi at bay. So for the future, I don't think that no gi is going to eclipse the barriers to entry to no gi make it such that it's very easy to open a gym. Um, nobody has to buy a gi. A lot of people have certain stereotypes around like Taekwondo and stuff when they have to put on a gi that you have to overcome. Um, so it has that advantage uh, when it comes to opening up gyms and selling memberships. Oh yeah, I don't have to pay 130 bucks for a gi or whatever it is. So, um, but but for those who are really serious about the sport, you look at the results and go, okay, well all these great gi players are the ones winning, and that's kind of 
something I struggled with, you know, I don't want to get too much into my, my journey, but, you know, at first I started in Gi with Carlson Gracie team, and then I went um, over to No Gi and got my black belt with Eddie, um, and then I went back to Gi and then got my black belt in Gi, and, and something I struggled with was results. It's like, well, it's been 12 years or so, and, you know, these No Gi guys aren't dominating the podium at Abu Dhabi. It's still you know, the, the Hodger Gracies and the, the Jacques and all the guys who, the Verdooms and stuff. So if it's good enough for them, why do I keep resisting the idea that like, you know, the Gi will make me a better Nogi player. Um, and so I think that, uh, that, it, like I said, the proof's in the pudding. I, I keep repeating myself. There's another point to this, too, which is that if we're looking, you know, because some of your question asked about no gi versus gi. Yep. If we're, lo- if we're looking at just, like, uh, memberships and stuff, it's much easier when you're getting starting a kid's class to have a gi program because gi allows for ranking and uniformity and discipline. And so I don't think we're going to lose that, uh, the gi, because, you know, when you're starting a the 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 future of jujitsu is our kids programs and our kids programs are centered around the gi so the gi will stick around as long as our kids programs stick with the gi that makes uh, that makes sense i actually asked professor rod about it today and he mentioned that we only have a few kids that are doing no gi and that's why we don't have a no gi class yet so um but i did see something the other day on inside bjj shout out to those guys about this uh, USA grappling team that they're putting together. And I'm going to try to remember the guy's name. Um, Actually, I have it on my phone. Um, Because one of them, they had on the guy who had competed in the, uh, against Chad George in the combat jiu-jitsu was the one guy um, that they had on. And then the other guy was this USA grappling. Have you, had you guys heard of that at all or no? No, I haven't. I okay. haven't heard of it. Oh, it's uh, Blair Green. Blair Green talks USA wrestling and this USA grappling. So anyway, they want they believe that we have the best grapplers in the world and they want us to compete in grappling against now kids and everything. It'll be run by USA wrestling, but it'll will compete against the Russians and the Brazilians and and uh, the, the Iranians and every other country uh, in submission grappling. So uh, I think that would be cool if there was something that was funded by uh, USA Wrestling, etc. So. F- F- uh, Fila tried this a couple years back. Um, Fila did like a USA team and that. Um, all of these are, are great ideas. It really comes about execution. So, mm-hmm. you know, if, if they're able to execute more power to them. Um, well, we'll get to see them in Vegas. I'm going to watch uh, Mark Sorelsi is going to compete in, uh, in Las Vegas the 28th, 29th, 30th IBJJF is there. Well, that Team USA grappling will be in Vegas the same weekend, so I might even get to catch, uh, to, to walk in there and buy a ticket and see what it looks like, and I'll report back on that. So... Um, all right, we want to get uh, Tony out of here because it's it's pretty late. So I want to do a couple of quick hitters uh, with you guys. Uh, I was going to ask about John Donaher and his system. I'm assuming, and I'll just take a, a quick one from either of you guys. Is there anything to that system? Is he a revolutionary, or has he just found a couple of guys who are really good at executing leg locks 
at the genesis of this this nogi movement and there's nothing more to it than that and you can take oh. this one first tony that's that's so tough because i've never trained with him and i i don't know the system i can only see the results of his, his prize students and i don't know what's going on in his academy in between the four walls and uh the topic it, it's such you know because it's leg locks. It's it's uh, you know for years it's always been a taboo to go fight for a foot and the leg and everything like that. And and people can debate this and you kind of you kind of do the different. You kind of come to the same consensus that 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 a uh, that a heel hook in grappling is a great equalizer. You know you can take someone that's a really good grappler, high level grappler, has different high ranks, and then the guy does a heel hook and beats the guy. And it's like well what what? You know sometimes that will happen. And uh, it's just it comes down to the rule books of, of and the rule set that you're playing. And when you have a leg lock system and and the guys are doing submission grappling, you know, the rule sets, you can you can do heel hooks. You can do knee bars sooner than later in uh, like the IBJJF rule set or, um, you know, with the gi on. You know, we're just not taught to do that. You can't do it when you're, you know, in a white belt and a blue belt. You can only do certain types of things below the waist at that rank. So, yeah, don't I know it? Don't I know it? As a Mr. Blue Belt here, it's it's a tough tough situation, and uh, you know, in the gym, even people people put on like a hill look and they just kind of put it on. It's just I, I still fall under caution if I'm running a school. No, no heel hooks, man. Don't do that unless the guys like really good high level guys go together and they, they say, yeah, we're going to do heel hooks. And you just you put it on and you do the positions and, you know, you don't you know, you guys know how to behave. They know how to move, you know, because things when you start playing with legs, when you're when you're a newer belt, and you're new to this grappling. It's so easy to pop. And it, it's a it's really difficult when you when you when you bust your knee up and, and any any type of injury is difficult for your grappling journey. But if you play legs really early when you're not supposed to, you could hurt somebody really fast. And I still, I still believe in that to this day. And I actually do it myself, but I don't, I do it just like that where I'll just put it on and, you know, and, and I'll just go and they'll see it and I'll just go, okay. And I just let it go. You know, I don't try to, you know, really put any force on it, but, and I'm certainly not high level, but I am very mature to say the least. I got enough gray hair. Uh, Brent, uh, I want to, I want to move on, um, to, uh, submission underground, a couple matches were, uh, announced today and, um, and just get your guys take on that Jake Shields versus Dylan Dennis for submission underground mm. four. And then we're going to tell you the joke match that was proposed after that. And Paulo Meow versus Uriah Faber. Oh. Um, I'll, I'll start. The second, the higher <laughs> match. Yeah, I know, right? Is that a joke? Oh, what? Paulo Meow versus... Well, you know, without a gi, I mean, Uriah Faber is pretty good without the gi. You keep him away from Marcio Feitoza, man. He's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. I, I like these platforms because it gives the guys that have exposure from the, the MMA, it gives them an opportunity. Like, Uriah Faber, he's retired now, but he can, he has a draw. People that... I mean, that's the idea, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It's... uh. You know, can these guys take on someone that's, you know, on the podium and a professional jiu-jitsu athlete see, and see what happens? I, I don't want to disrespect Paulo Miao, but watching him in a gi is about the most boring thing I could possibly imagine. 
um, sitting there grab doing grips for like five minutes in 50-50. But go ahead, Professor Brent. Uh, what do you think of that matchup? Um, I think that the the interesting thing about these draws is with someone like Uriah Faber is he has a, a really big will to win. Um, all the top MMA guys have gone through a whole lot of stuff to get there um, in terms of just grit. Mm-hmm. So I think they have they have a ton of grit. So sometimes like you want to you want to count them out, but they'll surprise you with just their their saltiness and their their ability to pull the W out of somewhere. But you know, let's get real. Uh, Paulo Miao is light years ahead of um, Faber in terms of ground game, and I think that if Faber actually engages and doesn't try and uh, like wrestle take him down and then back out wrestle take him (laughs) rinse repeat i think that paulo will eventually get his back and that'll be the end of that um jake shields versus dylan yeah jake um jake's a competitor man i remember i was at at, uh long beach at 2005 at abu dhabi watching that and he had a match with uh i want to say it was cameron earl and I feel like he beat him. Uh, some jujitsu historian will, will remember it. And he got his elbow popped, like in an omoplata, and it was really bad. Like you know, you could hear it from the stands. And then oh they, no, and he put on. Um, and he went into his next match, and he put on uh, two sleeves, one, uh, one elbow sleeve on each arm, so the person wouldn't know which one to attack. Um, so, but you know what? He's great. He's a great jiu-jitsu player. Um, so I would never count him out of anything. I know Dylan is kind of in his is coming up right now, and he's he's finding his uh, place at the top of the pantheon. But uh, Jake isn't done yet, and Jake comes from a submission background with Caesar. I know he's actually training with John Danaher right now too. So when Tony was talking about rivalries, it's not a respectful rivalry, but. Uh, Marcelo and Henzo's has a rivalry, so this will be an interesting rivalry match. I don't, I don't know who I would pick in this necessarily, um, because I think in the end it would probably be a draw. Well, and if if you watch online, Dylan is training a lot of wrestling uh, at some academy in like uh, New Jersey or somewhere. He's training at this wrestling academy, and Jake has always been dominant in wrestling. He, in terms of submission grapplers, he always seems to out wrestle. Everybody that, with the exception, of course, of uh, uh, the funky one. Um, what's the guy's name? The hundred. Yeah. Aside from Ben Askren, I mean, he pretty much dominates the wrestling in most of those matches. So that'll be interesting. Is who's gonna who's gonna pull guard first and all that? And is is uh, you know he gonna try to do a De La Hiva or something like that? I'm wondering what what Dylan's gonna try to do. Um, so. one one legged X probably will be his his go to thing and uh, but you know this this isn't Jake has a ton of really tough training partners too uh, out in the Bay Area so. yeah, yeah to who, say the who, least who, right you know, <laughs> actually um, I think Crone uh, trains a little bit with Jake as well yeah um, be, because they're part of that uh, Gilbert Melendez uh, Nate the DS brothers, brothers. And stuff so yeah so they're you know he's I wouldn't I wouldn't count Jake out I'd probably if it's a point game, I, I'd give it to Jake, and uh, it's going to be sub only. Sub only, it'd probably be a draw, or however they do it. But. Yeah, it'll go to overtime. Yeah, and then they'll do the spider web. Okay, uh, here's the joke match. Uh, in my, I don't know what to call this guy. Just 
um, I, I don't I don't know what adjective I want to say uh, persona non grata the person that I just like to make fun of the most because I just think he's such a uh, a knucklehead is uh, John Bones Jones um, and now they wanted to match him up with it he's uh, he's probably called out so let's see he's called out 47 year old Dan Henderson um, he wouldn't take a match with Danis because he thought he could lose to a little guy. He wouldn't fight uh, Vinny Magalhães. And now he's talking about Matt Mitrione. Anybody who watches the UFC knows that Matt Mitrione can't grapple. I mean, like, he can't, he's been submitted a number of times. Uh, why would you call out Matt Mitrione for a grappling match? Like, why isn't he calling out someone like Phil Davis? Such a I'll let Tony picture. handle this. I don't know. This, uh... Tony's not the MMA guy. <laughs> yeah, oh. I've trained with Matt Mitrione. He he's not. Here's the thing. There's grappling for the sport, like in a submission underground, and then there's grappling for MMA. Um, some guys are really good at uh, grappling for MMA, and then their grappling for sport is not so fantastic, and vice versa. And I'd say Matt Mitrione is decent on the ground. Um, probably as decent as John Jones is in terms of submission ability, um, but yeah, in fights at the at the heavyweight where he gets punched a lot, that changes you know everybody's game. So well, he was a nationally ranked Greco-Roman wrestler in junior college. I mean, he was recruited by Oklahoma State. He's been recruited by a number of programs. It was only that his girlfriend got pregnant and he became a father in college. Is why the only reason. He didn't go on to Division One glory. I mean, the guy is a phenomenal wrestler. He's been training with Tusa for how many years now? Um, I, it's just, you know what it is? It would be like you calling me out, you know, for, I mean, you don't shoot down, you know what I mean? But that's John's MO, you know? And one of the coaches who was at Jackson's, who is no longer there, who's one of the original members of Jackson's MMA from day one, of of their their academy said to me john will never call out somebody unless he knows he can beat that person and he's only proven that more and more who calls out a 47 year old to to go in a grappling tournament dan henderson knowing that he's going to take the fight <laughs> who like how do you the same guy I, that runs from a car accident yeah, yeah, the same guy that runs from a car accident comes back and gets his money and then runs again. Because that would be like me calling out like a 68-year-old who doesn't, you know, train jiu and go, come on, man, you want to grapple me? Come on, I'm a blue belt. Come on, tough guy. Come on, bro. I mean, that's that's John Jones' MO, so I just thought you guys would laugh at that. Uh, all right, um, Tony... I think we're gonna uh, we got to get you out of here now um, because it is. Uh, let's see, what are we looking at? One forty-seven in the morning your time. Uh, it's just a little bit late on the East Coast, yeah. Yes, it's. Uh, I got. I was gonna say maybe <laughs> 10, 15, 20 more minutes if uh, we're kept going, but. Well, but yes. the the next thing we're gonna talk, we're gonna talk some UFC, and we don't want to bore you with that, so. Um, because I think <laughs> well, you're... It depends on who you're talking about. Oh, uh, wow. we were going to talk about Junior and Kane. I actually had a little rant that I was going to go on uh, for about a minute and a half and then let you guys respond, but I, I really don't think that... Uh, <laughs> I don't think no, it's... That, that, 
That's cool. I, I like certain fighters in the UFC or whatever promotion that they're in. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's also the, there's so many events with, that you're talking about with the pro jujitsu and the sub events. And, you know, sometimes I'll catch the matchups, but you know, that's not really what I'm up to these days. And as you know, and, no, I, you know what, man, you know, I think, I, I think I can feel that both Brent and I were probably inspired by the purity of your jujitsu goals. And, um, and Hickson is about as, you know, I mean, if they say that, you know, they, they say the water's cleanest closer to the spring or closest to the source or whatever. I mean, he's about as close to the source as you're going to get. Uh, yes. Um, so. but that's it. Uh, there's nothing that I want to plug or anything like that. I, I mean, of course you do know what I have coming up. But. Oh yeah. Let, can we talk about the mat really quick? Uh, sure. Cause I just kind of. You know, before I get off the stage here, it's always good to. I had that in mind to do it, and I totally forgot about your uh, the the mat basically that uh, that's portable. So Tony's been working on this project for like over a year now. So go ahead, Tony, and let let us have it. I think it, it helps me because now I'm so focused with the Air Force and my my professional goals in the Air Force, and you know anything I can do to help Hickson and my own personal training, and. Uh, you know, when you when you go do when you enlist in the age that I listed in, 36 years old, after doing jujitsu all my life right there since I was a teenager, you know that was the first time that I had stepped away from the mat for the amount for the, I guess we were in basic training for, I remember December for like maybe eight weeks, but then it goes a little bit more because then you got you got to travel to tech school and all these other things, and I was. I was going crazy, not because of uh, the Air Force, and the, but I was just wasn't able to train. Yeah, you and wanted a mat. You wanted a roll. Mat, <laughs> right? And um, you know, my my MTI, my military training instructor, he he knew that I was a jiu-jitsu guy, and he when after a couple weeks, he said, you know, he he would leave, and we were all by we could take care of ourselves on the weekend, and he was like, hey, Pazensky, no no jujitsu lessons on the weekend, you know, and that would have been my chance. Cause there's a lot of guys that wanted to train, you know, and he said no. And, uh, so I made a joke and I said, right, guys, we're not going to be doing jujitsu this weekend. All classes are canceled. But, um, yeah, that's the point. And now it's, you're in the air force. You can be deployed. You can be, you could be anywhere, any moment. And I was tripping out. I was like, well, no, it's really hard to get a mat these days. You're like, my schedule keeps changing. My, I'm training at this school, but then my, my schedule changes. And then, uh, now I got to train here and these guys only meet at this time. And I'm like, man, I, I've always had a mat when I had a mat, when I lived in LA, I had my own mat and now I need a mat, but then I also need to be able to take it with me because what if I deploy tomorrow? I want to be able to train. I, that's the point. I mean, that's, what's going to keep me like sane. And, uh, um, well, you deploy, you're going to have a mat at your deployed location. You won't have to worry about bringing it bring it on deployment because they all almost all the gyms have them now but oh I, I know that and i know the gyms already before i know all the places that i could be placed and uh yeah they they told me about the program i'm asking questions about the bjj club there mm -hmm. yep so that's kind of like common knowledge me at the in the shop but that was my motivation to do this and uh then i started doing some research i was like well what what can i do and i remember speaking to one of my instructors for my phase training i was like well he said, well, what's the best mat? 
And I was like, oh, man, maybe like like the Flex Connect that, that Dalamar makes because you don't need matte tape. You can roll it out. And and then you don't you can it'll it'll be together. But you know I really can't carry that. I can't take two pieces with me in my bag. And you know even if I even though I was like stepped away from the deployment idea and just like even if I had like a, a truck or a car, I can't be bringing these mats to train somewhere. And if and then I was thinking, well, if you had these mats at home, my wife would get all mad and get these old Resolite mats out of the, out of the garage or get these these throw down the puzzle mats. mats. Yeah. Garbage. different mats and I'm just like well if, if I said to myself that this mat was the best but it had a flaw it's not the best to me so I was like well let me let me see if I can develop a, a mat made out of air <laughs> like that would work right and then I started doing my research and I started to contact companies even while I'm like on my hoping to God on a weekend that I wouldn't have weekend duty and I would drive you know as far as I could go without um Know, being out of my my distance from the base here in Florida, and uh, I actually met with a company that was just outside of Florida in in Atlanta, and I was like, "You guys have the right idea. This is the right idea, but you're the wrong people. <laughs> you know, I don't I don't trust you guys. I don't I don't I don't I don't feel a good energy, a good synergy with you, and um, you're just it, it's going to take it's going to take some time to develop this idea. So I started to do other research into other 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 cultures of uh, like other industries that have this technology. And I was like, I, they, they're like, well, what do you want to do? And I was like, ah, I want to make a mat. I want to do it like this. And they're like, ah, I don't know if it's going to work. And you know, it just kind of kept going, going, going. And finally, like I met a company that like, we can make that for you. We can do this. Let's do this. And then it was negotiating. And then that company was like, I don't know if we can do this. That Like it was just, but it all happened. And um, in the next 10 days or so, maybe 15 days, I'll have my, my, my prototype, if you will. And I'm very excited about it. And it will be a product, I, I call it a training surface for athletes. An athlete or a person that wants to train, they can take this product with them anywhere. They can go on any type of surface and they can, do, they can train martial arts or fitness or anything. And give us give us the name of this this uh, product, Tony. Give us and and then we got to we got to get you out of here, and I got to shut it down. We're at an hour thirty two, but give us the name of it, and uh, and and then just tell us. Uh, give us your particulars, your YouTube, your Twitter, all these sorts of things, Instagram. Yeah, of course, of course um, I have my my own personal website, soul, uh, soulfight.net, and my my own real like tonypazensky.com. I just did that for, for several reasons. And um, this product, and this is what we're going for, my wife and I, is uh, it's called Tatami Air. And it's a, it's a training surface, and, and that's my, my thing. I felt it would be a good thing for me to do while I'm, you know, I just have to really, you know, market the hell out of it and, you know, make, test it in the community. And people are going to believe in it or they're not going to believe in it. They're going to use it or they're not going to use it. And it was like, you know, this is really cool. You know, I've been doing this for a long time. And I, I, at the end of the day, I get my, I get my tatami air out of this. So that's the goal. for more people to train and now to take their training anywhere. And, uh, if it's in the garage, you can stow it away. It's a, it's a, it'll inflate. You can take it out. It'll, it'll blow up in 45 seconds. It's, it's amazing. And, uh, you can control, the, the the stiffness of it or the softness of it 
because there's different types of training services and people need different types for what they're doing. So I think it, it'll be pretty cool and I hope that it's tested well and people will like it. And uh, the Tommy Air. Be so cool. like in case I hit a double leg on Brent, we want to have it kind of like firm so that when he goes down, like it, you know, it won't hurt him and stuff. Well, this is this is what I meant by there's there's uh, different mats because you know I, I personally think that the best mat until Tatami Air came to to fruition was a spring loaded judo mat. I just thought that that was the best, you know, because you got that little spring, you had about this the, the stiffness of Tatami, and it just it looked really good in the gym and et cetera, et cetera. But we can't all have spring loaded Tatamis. Wait, that'd come in handy if Brent sprawls out on me and then just <laughs> kind of shoulders me down, and then all of a sudden I find myself face first on the mat. Right. But right, but it's hard to build that subfloor out everywhere. So yes, you are correct. You, it's hard to have a, a that spring-loaded surface ready to go. Right, and again, it's not deployable. So that was my thing. I was like, well, I can't have spring loaded, and you know what I'm saying. But that's the point. We know the different different mats that are out there, different companies. And they have their different niches, and it's like, I'll be coming to the marketplace with something different, something that needs to be tested, with something that's going to have style, and people are going to be like, I want to do this because I feel like sometimes you got to take your jujitsu and go out into the world and show people what you can do and help other people and spread the love, and you can't always do that by being stuck in the gym. You got to get out there and do it. And I think I like I like to see a lot of the guys in LA and, and San Diego. They're doing more jujitsu on the beaches and outside and the, and the little, little parks and things like that. And I'm always asking, like, well, hey, man, how big is your surface? They have no idea what I'm talking about. But, you know, this is this is a, a vehicle. This is a medium. This is a product that can, you know, do, do all that. I and, dig it, man. Tony, yeah, I will be a customer because I want to take it down to the yoga studio, show a little bit of self-defense to some of my uh, friends and colleagues yeah, down at the yoga do, studio. Here's, here's the you could take it to the yoga studio and do partner yoga and do yoga on it. Well, yeah, I mean, they, they might not like how much space I'm taking up, but <laughs> for the empty, you know, like usually they only have, normally they only have one room occupied at a time in these amazing rooms that uh, they have at, at my studio. But uh, there are a couple people who have expressed some interest in, in learning a little bit of jiu-jitsu, and that might be, you know the the spark that gets them over to the academy because it's a big step for a lot of people to walk exactly. over, walk into an academy. I've so. also told a few people. I mean, now I'm in a freaking podcast, but people that I did talk to, Hickson and some other people, they're like, oh, "That's really cool." Because then you could like privates and stuff, and you can take it with you. I was like, "Yeah, that's exactly what you can do," and you can get those people as clients, and then bring them into your school and vice versa. So, I dig it. So when you see it on uh, my Facebook and Instagram and stuff like that, we'll just we're just playing around. But when the thing really launches, the website and the, the uh, videos and the things like that, it, it'll be pretty cool because that's how we're gonna do. It. We're gonna do like a launch and I'm excited. get that momentum. Going. It's gonna get real. What's your uh, Instagram, Tony? Um, everything is Tony Pazensky. My my Facebook, my Instagram, my my website, TonyPazensky.com. And uh, soulfighter.net. Soulfight.net has always been like my where I sold DVDs and with information about me and running an academy. But now I'm pretty much moving towards to Tommy Air is going to be my thing. 
JJGF to help the Federation and anything anything Hickson that I can help him with and Carlos Gama and all the boys there. It's just that's that's my my connection to jujitsu is uh, is that and my own my own personal training of course. Like I have certain martial arts goals that I want to do. I want to compete again. I want to uh, you know, get rank in judo. I want to become get my my dan rank in that and other styles of Japanese jiu-jitsu, so I'm staying It's cool. I'm Jewish, but can I get an amen? <laughs> <laughs> Tony, thank. I want to thank you very much Mazel for... <laughs> I want to thank you very much for being on with us. Um, you can find Tony's work online if you uh, even Google Tony Pesensky. A lot uh, comes up, and uh, I appreciate... Uh, what you're doing for the sport and uh and again it, the purity of it is is what it was designed for <clears throat> and and in terms of self-defense and um we need more people that are that are talking about that because i think we all get bogged down in the sport of it and and forget that it's it's meant to to maybe save your life um i wish you uh, a great time with your new bride in my beloved u.s air force and we'll talk to you soon Thank you, DJ. As a, as a friend, thank you. I, I do this for you, and I'll be up all night to talk to jiu-jitsu. I cannot talk jiu-jitsu when we start talking about MMA and UFC, but I could talk about jiu-jitsu all night, and uh, you know, a friend of mine. So thank you for this, and, and Brad, it was really nice to hear the some of the points that you made, insight, and you know, thank you for being on also. So thank you very much. Likewise. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right, guys. Have a good one. Enjoy you the too. rest of the conversation. Look forward to hearing this. Let me know. Right. He's uh, out. Tony Pesensky, ladies and gentlemen. Little Tony Pesensky, as they, they once called him. Um, he's not little to me, and quite frankly, uh, Brent and I are both probably jealous of his hair. Um, <laughs> so, so it's been an hour and 39, so uh, I could do the Junior Kane rant, or we could just we could just close it right here. It's probably getting pretty late for you as well. It, it is. It is getting a little late, so I'm gonna have to cut it here. All right, then uh, I think we uh, we will cut it right here, and we will save that for another episode. We have lots uh, to say about uh, Junior dos Santos going up against uh, um, going up against uh, um, now Kim Stipe Miocic, and uh, relative yeah. to how it all plays into uh, Jiu-Jitsu Ace, and I hate to make it like we're you know. Like because we love jujitsu, we're gonna automatically root for Fabrizio Verdun. But I think it plays into a larger narrative in the UFC that sort of disregards um, certain people's accomplishments and rankings, and kind of takes us down a road that that might not be all that positive. But we'll we'll tackle that next time. So, um, uh, Brent, I want to thank you for being on. I hope uh, you enjoyed it. It was it was a pleasure hearing um, you and Tony, two people that are like I, I felt like kind of out of place because I I know so little about jujitsu compared to you guys that is ridiculous in in comparison. Uh, but I was happy to be a fly on the wall and listen. Uh, that's how I feel when I hear all the Brazilians talking about uh, what goes on back in Brazil. So I understand. <laughs> okay. Um, where can uh, people get a hold of you? I know, um, you know, we uh, gave out earlier. We have your it's uh, GracieBaja72.wordpress.com. First day BJJ. 
um, you can get yourself some teachings from Brent Littell, a Gracie Baja and 10th Planet Black, Del Black Belt, who is uh, set to open his own academy. And uh, I'm sure I'll be feeling some strikes from him uh, when I go down there to roll. <laughs> yep, yep. And um, you can just look me up on the Facebook, uh, Brent, B-R-E-N-T, Littell, L-I-T-T-E-L-L. That's -L -L. Uh, spelled like Liddell, Chuck Liddell, but with two T's instead of two D's. That's right. And, you know, you really do have a better hairdo, I think, than, than Chuck. But that, I you know. try. Um, <laughs> and, Brent, thank you very much. I appreciate you being on with me. Obviously, I'm trying to, you know, have you as my, my as, as the co-host uh, because of the things that you ask are, are very intuitive and intelligent, and uh, everybody can see that. And it actually makes me look smarter for having you on. So, <laughs> all right. <laughs> You're too kind. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, my brother. I am hurt with a knee injury, which is why you didn't see me. I popped my knee in our last uh, sparring on uh, Wednesday. So I'm just taking uh, – it's not anywhere near as bad as last time where I was out for a month and a half. But uh, I saw the therapy guy at the VA today, and he said take another week until you can do X, Y, and Z. So I, I should be back uh, next week for sure. All right. All right. Awesome. All right. Have a good one. All right. Thanks a lot, Brent. Take care. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. All right, folks. That was uh, Brent Littell. It was uh, a long conversation about BJJ. I think there was a lot of value there. And you can hear and feel the passion in the voice of Tony and Brent and getting to the source. And you can kind of see the direction that where Tony's at so close to Hicks and Gracie and wanting to show people this is the real jiu-jitsu. This is how simple this is and people can show you 27 different ways to do something but really um, this one works and, and you become dangerous in this position and you're threatening that person's life uh, by being on top of their chest and so there's a lot of mental games going on. So there's a, there's a lot to what he was saying and it comes right from Hicks and Gracie. And that's as close to the source of jiu-jitsu greatness as there is in the world, literally. And Tony knows him. And um, Brent could feel that. Brent was also able to play off that. I think he has a lot of the same opinions, which is why he's going to have rolling with strikes at his gym. Because he wants people to be able to defend themselves with jiu-jitsu. Because I think he feels if you're not able to protect yourself with jiu-jitsu as um, uh, Hickson says you don't know jiu-jitsu um, does that mean that my jiu-jitsu self-defense is the best in the world no but I know a lot of uh, techniques I did a lot more of it at, at Helsing Gracie they focus on it a, a lot more we do some at Gracie Baja and and if I did the fundamentals class I would be doing even more you know it's just a matter of um, you know training with the advanced guys because it's safer given the injuries I had. If I were injury free and just a normal physical person without shoulder tears and knee tears, labrum tears, rotator cuff, all that kind of stuff, I would just I would be in the fundamental classes every week. It's really just me protecting myself that I'm not. Um, so anyway, it's it's the essence of jujitsu. It's that it's that simple. Um, so anyway, it's um, at MMA underscore BJJ underscore and life on Twitter. We are not yet on uh, on iTunes, but we will be. 
And of course, it's DJ or David J. San Marco on Facebook. Hit me up, DJ San Marco1 at gmail.com if you want to email me anything about the show. And we want to thank you very much for being part of it tonight on MMA, BJJ, and Life. Chewing on a piece of grass, walking down the road. Tell me how long you gonna stay here, Joe? Some people say.